Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. Thank you for joining us. As you listen to the proclamation of God's Word, our prayer for you is the same prayer Jesus prayed for His church in John 17, 17. Lord, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. We're in Revelation again this morning. We're going to finish up with the final church, the seven letters uh, to the seven churches. And I would like you to stand to your feet as we read. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 12. Revelation 3, verses 14 through 22, not 12. Revelation 3, verses 14 through 22. This is the word of God. And to the angel of the church at Laodicea write, This is what the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of all creation of God says. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and I've become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you're wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me Gold refined by fire so that you may become rich. And white garments so that you may clothe yourself. And that the shame of your nakedness will not be manifested. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, truly open our eyes today to your word and the truth that is found within the pages of scripture lord give us the courage lord then to align our lives with that truth submit fully to you maybe we be may we be renewed and restored may we draw closer to you today in jesus name we pray amen you may be seated uh, seated it's fascinating to me that as a modern-day church, we can look back at uh, the book of Revelation and, and specifically these letters to these seven churches and read the instructions that Christ himself has for these churches. Just, just think about that for a moment. Written by Jesus Christ, our Lord himself, he tells them and us what he approves of, of what he disapproves of, uh, we ourselves can read these pages, read the scripture, and we can take stock of our own church, of our own hearts, a, a sort of spiritual inventory. And based on these words, we can have a pretty solid idea of whether or not we or our local church live up to his standards, the standards that Christ himself has for the church. And here we come to, again, the seventh and final letter that Christ writes to these seven churches. And this, this one is to the church of Laodicea. Laodicea is the furthest church south 
and to the east of all the other churches. If we were, if we were looking at a, a clock and, and place the cities uh, in the places of, of the ticks on a clock, it would probably be down around 5 o'clock in the grand scheme of where all these cities lie on the map. And of the seven churches, this church is found to be the worst of all of them. Now, many scholars believe that there's this universal picture of these seven churches and that each of these churches in some form or fashion actually represents the church, the universal church, the God's church over the period of time from the time that Christ uh, ascended all the way till the very end in the last church. And they believe that this church, Laodicea, represents that last church age and that we are in that last period of time before Christ himself returns. I think there's some arguments to be made for that. I know that some people would disagree with that, but I think there's some merit to that. Certainly worth considering that we are in fact in the final days of this church age and that Christ himself is standing even at the edge of heaven waiting to come back for his bride. Laodicea has a storied history, and much of which we're going to uncover, uncover in this study as we go through these verses. But their lifestyle is also kind of woven within this passage itself to a pretty, a pretty uh, incredible degree. The meaning and the point Jesus is getting across to them as we read through this is unmistakable. The rebuke from Christ himself is harsh. They're hard words. If we were standing in the room with Jesus and he said the same thing to us, it would break us to pieces. It would tear us apart. So this, this word that he writes to this church, it's very serious. And it's one that we should all take note of. And Jesus begins this letter, just like he does many of the others, by introducing himself as the author. They didn't sign the letter at the end like we do. Sincerely, Michael. They started out by saying, hey, this is Michael, so you know immediately who is addressing you. Well, he begins this letter so that they can make no mistake about who, in fact, is addressing them. This is from Christ himself. This is Christ's epistle to the church at Laodicea. So we begin there in verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, this is what the amen, the faithful, and the true witness says, he begins by calling himself the Amen. And there's nowhere else in Scripture that Christ is given the name the Amen. What does that mean? Well, when we see words repeated often, it means we should take note. When we see one word used one time in a particular passage, it means we should take note. There's special significance there. This unique name to say Amen, it means I affirm that. I agree, but not only agree, I affirm that that is in fact true. And when speaking of Jesus and applying it to his name, what it means is whatever he says is absolute and it is true and it is certain. You understand? That's what it means. He is the amen. And the next title in the passage then affirms that he is the amen by saying as much, by clarifying further, he is the faithful and true witness. He is the faithful and true witness. Now you guys all know in our modern society what it means to be a witness. It means you're giving testimony about something. And very simply put, anything Christ Jesus testifies to, 
than we know for a fact is absolutely true. No one will be able to point to him and call him a liar. No one can make an accusation that he has twisted the facts or in some way is bearing false witness against them. Amen? That's what it means. If he says it about you, it's true. In this opening statement, the first two titles make it very clear that the one writing this letter is irrefutable. He is perfectly faithful and he is perfectly true. And this would be encouraging to the Laodiceans if we didn't know what followed in the text. To be on the wrong side of his faithfulness. To be on the wrong side of his testimony. To be on the wrong side of the witness that he is bearing is truly and indeed a frightful and terrifying thing. The third title he gives himself here is this. The beginning of the creation of God. The beginning of the creation of God. And this has significant bearing on our passage today. We need to understand. Many false teachers in the past have used this particular passage of Scripture and one in Colossians, both in the English translation, for the purpose of trying to prove that Jesus himself was a created being. Okay? Many of the main, denom- or not denominations, but many other false religions, also this is the core of what they believe, that Christ is in fact a created being, that he was created by God. This could not be further from the truth. Make no mistake, the word beginning here in Greek undeniably states that he was not the first thing created by God. Okay? That's not what this is saying. Rather, all things were created by him and through him and for him, and Christ himself is the source of all creation. The simple clarification is the difference, honestly, between the truth about God and who Christ is and heresy, whether or not you're actually part of the true church or part of a false heretical church. Amen? And that's why it's so important for us to understand this truth. This particular heresy that Christ Jesus was a creating a created being is believed to have infiltrated the church there at Laodicea. And not only that church, but a church nearby the city, a church in the city of Colossae. And the church of Colossae, for instance, when we turn to the book of Colossians, and I'm going to ask you to do that, Colossians 1, just flip over there real quick. But we find even further evidence that this is likely true, that whatever plagued Laodicea was also what was plaguing the church in Colossae. So in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, Colossians 1, 15 through 17, there's this passage that we see here that sort of echoes or parallels what we just read in the book of Revelation. Speaking of Jesus, again, here's what it says. He is the image of the invisible God. That word image is icon, the exact representation. The firstborn of all creation. For in him, all things were created. Now ask yourself as we read this, if this is not clear. Clear as a bell. For in him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or rulers, or authorities, all things, everybody say all things. All things have been created through him 
and for him, and he is before all things. He precedes all things, and in him all things hold together. Amen. And that word firstborn, as I've taught on a few occasions, does not mean he was the first one born chronologically in a, in a linear timeline. It means he's preeminent. He is the source. He's the one from which all things come into existence. He is before all things, as we see this passage clearly states. And even, uh, quote, in him all things hold together. Just, just, just ponder that truth for just a moment. In him all things hold together. Consider without his consistent supernatural influence, all things would dissipate and just cease to exist. That is who Jesus Christ is. So this heresy concerning this essential truth of Christ's nature, it was being challenged in the church at Colossae, and it was being challenged in this church at Laodicea. Now listen, this church in Laodicea illustrates that if you get the person of Jesus Christ wrong, then you get the gospel wrong. All of it. You miss that one thing. Everything that, that flows from that is wrong. I heard someone recently say, guys, gals, I don't know, maybe you, all of you. I've never, I've never been a woman. so, uh, But uh, I can assume that when you start buttoning your shirt, I know this has happened to me many times, if you get the top button wrong, every button down the shirt is wrong. And that's the case with this, this truth. You get this wrong, everything below that that you believe is off. It's wrong. If you tweak the divine nature of Christ even one iota, my friends, you have created a false Jesus. You've created a Jesus that is not represented in Scripture. It is a powerless idol, and it poses as the real thing. And our Christology or our theology about Christ, what we believe about Jesus must be impeccable. There's no room for error. Get it wrong, and you are worshiping a false god. That's how it works. And this is why the church there was not saved. They weren't saved. They were a church full of false converts at this point. The church had started out. It was planted as a faithful church years ago. But this heretical false doctrine had permeated the church. And eventually, they had completely missed the mark. This church had bought into this deadly heresy and the people filling the pews were dead, and they were unregenerate. Let me, let me point out one more point of evidence that was plaguing Colossae, was also plaguing Laodicea. If, if you were to turn to the end of Colossians chapter 4 and verse 16, at the close of this letter, it's stated, again, that's Colossians 4, 16. He says, and when this letter is read among you, so he's quoting, read this letter among the church, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. So he's saying, you both have a problem, and I want you to share what I have written to both of you. Now, we don't have that church to Laodicea. It's not canonical, which means Christ didn't mean for us today to have that letter. But we do have the one at Coloss. So we know that what he said to Colossae is enough for us today to gather the meaning of what he meant for that church to know and understand. This is why I believe Jesus states this again, though, in his intro in the book of Revelation. 
that they would know it is he who is the everlasting, omniscient source of all creation. And then he transitions to those familiar words we've heard before in these letters. He says, I know your deeds. I know your deeds. Nothing is unseen by his penetrating eyes. Nothing is unknown by his omniscient mind. There's nothing hidden from God. It's silly to think that we can hide anything from God. He knows all. And he most certainly knows their deeds. And he most certainly knows our deeds. Verse 15, look at that. Verse 15. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. And I wish that you were cold or hot. There's no, there's no negatives to being either cold or hot. They're both positives. I wish that you were one of the, or the other, he says. Now, I've spoken to this before, but I want to give you some background so you'll fully understand what Jesus is actually referencing here for these people who were very, very familiar with it, using this particular terminology. Just about 12 miles to the north of Laodicea is this church we've been discussing. I'm sorry, north was Hierapolis, okay? This, this town of Hierapolis was well-known for having a hot mineral springs, like uh, Hot Springs, Arkansas, okay? They had this bubbling hot water coming up out of the ground, and it was known uh, to offer relaxation and healing for weary travelers passing there through that valley. And then 12 miles to the east of Laodicea and a little to the south was this church we've been discussing, Colossae, okay? Now in Colossae, they were well known for their natural spring water that bubbled up out of the ground, cold and refreshing, quenching water offering to weary travelers as they pass by. The city of Laodicea was in a unique but unfortunate situation there in that valley. They had no access to either cold or hot water. And so their only opportunity to get water to that city was to build an aqueduct. Now, when we were in Israel, we saw some of these aqueducts. There's one that goes from Jericho all the way to like Jerusalem. It's, it's incredible. It's made of stone. It's like this irrigation ditch, and it's been there forever since Jesus walked that path. We, walked, we looked right where Jesus would have walked on the road to Jericho. And you hear the stories about the Good Samaritan, the same road that the Good Samaritan would have walked on. They traveled it three times a year, very, very um, well-traveled road, and that aqueduct went that way. But here's the, the difference about the aqueduct here. This was brought in from Hierapolis, the hot springs. It was mineral water. And by the time it got to the city, the minerals had so caked onto the sides of the aqueduct and in, in the drainage and the piping of the city, it almost choked off the water flow altogether. And it was lukewarm and it was tepid and it was full of minerals, okay? In short, it was disgusting. You wouldn't want to drink it. And the properties of that water actually had a biological effect on the person who was drinking the water. It made them feel nauseous. It made them want to vomit. And this is the way Jesus describes it. A clear illustration for them. You serve no purpose. You are neither cold for the purpose of a refreshing or a quenching thirst. You are neither hot for the purpose of healing. You are purposeless and worthless as the nauseating, disgusting water you are all so familiar with. Look at verse 16. 
Verse 16, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You see, the church has a purpose. His true church has a purpose. And while some might lean towards offering that soul healing comfort and hope, others offer the soul refreshing uh, and quenching of the truth of God's word. And, and maybe some faithful churches are so gifted that they offer both refreshing and healing. I pray that that's what our church would be, that we would offer both healing and refreshing. But this church did neither, he writes. I wish that you were at least one or the other, but you don't do either. Therefore, why do you even exist? Why do you even have the, the word church in your name? His response is that they make him sick. His response is that they make him want to vomit. And again, these are very harsh words coming from Jesus, if you can imagine. The strange thing is that that is not the way the Laodiceans saw themselves at all. They saw themselves as having it all together. They were, they were in the zone. They had their stuff together. What a shock what a shock this letter must have been to them. To learn they were being rejected by the one they believed they knew so well. The one that they believed they were serving so well. And their problem was the standard they used to measure their spiritual success. If you measure your spiritual condition by any other standard than the standard God has given us in His Word, then you are in terrible danger of missing, on, missing out on Him completely. We do not measure spiritual success by our physical circumstances. We do not measure spiritual growth by the number of people in the chairs or the pews of our church. We do not measure spiritual closeness and intimacy with Christ by necessarily by physical manifestations or emotional reactions. But as I said before, your emotions should flow from the truth that you know to be true. When you see the truth, it moves you and there can be an emotional reaction. But we don't seek emotions on our, on our own. That's not the point. We do not measure our spirituality by our financial situation or by the possessions that we own. And this church was very confident that what they had been doing was what Christ wanted them to do. But they were measuring themselves by the wrong standards. We have to understand that. Look at verse 17. Because you say, I am rich, I have become wealthy, I have need of nothing. And look at this arrogance, look at this self-sufficiency. And this is nothing short of that same ancient spirit of Babel, at the Tower of Babel. When they thought they could do it on their own, they didn't need God, they could build this tower and make a name for themselves. Look at us, we've arrived without His help. And folks, this is humanism. And we can follow this, this, this line of humanism throughout all of Scripture, all the way to the book of Revelation, to the very end when God judges the spirit of Babel, when he judges the spirit of humanism, and the, the Antichrist embodies that humanistic view and what people are clamoring for to have a leader, uh, someone who will just give them what they want. We see that vein run through politically, uh, socialism and communism and all of these things in life, it's this, it's this fake sort of um, what God originally designed for us to understand and know in eternity. 
People want to falsify it and have it now in the wrong time. But is it any wonder that when they had bought into the idea that Christ himself was a created being, that they called into question that he was God, and the very next domino to fall, the very next thing that they got wrong that, were, that was erroneous in their thinking was diminishing the otherness, the uniqueness, the preeminence of Christ. The very next thing that happened was they thought too highly of themselves. They're one step down from God himself. They had achieved self-sufficiency. You see, the city of Laodicea was very wealthy. It had been wealthy for a very, very long time, actually. They had a history of some very clever business people in that city. The success of that city had made them so well off that their attitude was, I have become rich, I am wealthy, and I have need of nothing. What a scary place to be if you truly do not understand that regardless of the things that you have or the wealth that you attain, it's all from him. Amen? It's all from him. Every bit of it is from him. Is there a more earth-shattering revelation to these well-to-do Laodiceans than the next statement Jesus makes, exposing to them their true spiritual condition? Look at what he says. First, yet you do not know. You're ignorant of this. You aren't even aware of this. You're going to be blindsided by this. You do not know that you are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. Yes, on the outside, you have nice clothing. You live in nice homes. You're educated. You seem happy and provided for. But here's your true condition spiritually. In all of the ways that matter, you are wretched, which means spiritually distressed. You are spiritually distressed. You are pitiable, which means spiritually miserable. Spiritually wanting. You are poor, which is one who is shameful. One who cowers or begs for money. You stand proud with your chest puffed out and your, your chin held high. But in your spirit, you are cowering like a begging dog. You are blind. You think you see the truth, but in a devastating reality, you do not see it all. You are completely blind to the truth. You're missing the whole point. He also says you are naked. And nakedness was perhaps one of the most shameful things that, you could, that could be attributed to you uh, outside, of course, what God has uh, you know, given in the confines of marriage and the, and the marital bed, right? That's, that's where it belongs and the only place it belongs. But when it speaks of nakedness in Scripture... It's talking about paganism. It's talking about all kinds of sexual deviancy when it speaks. It's talking about paganism and, and being disconnected from God altogether like the Egyptians were. That, that God called them out from among the Egyptians and set them free and gave them a new way to live. So it connected them to being lost without God, which is in fact exactly what Jesus was saying to them here. You say to me, Lord, Lord. Look at what we have. Look at our wealth. And I say to you that you indeed have nothing. I don't even know you. I don't even know you. Therefore, you have no purpose. I reject you. I will spit you out of my mouth. Remember we talked about when Jesus said, eat my flesh and drink my blood. What he's saying is that you must ingest me. Because if you accept something fully, this goes for all humans, you eat it. 
and this is an illustration. If I put something in front of you and you believe it's safe and you believe it's good to eat, you eat it and you accept it fully. You do not put something in your mouth and swallow it if you don't fully accept it. Can I get an amen? You don't eat things you don't like. That's what he's, that's what he's saying here. I, this is the opposite. I'm spitting you out of my mouth. I'm rejecting you wholly and completely. You're gone. You're done. But he's a merciful God. And there's always still time to repent. Amen? There's still time for them to see. There's still hope for them yet. And he gives them some advice. And when Christ gives you advice, you better listen. They were false converts. And everything he pointed to in regard to their salvation was a facade. So he advises them to get the real thing. He points out three things that they need. And incidentally, each also point to true conversion. Genuine salvation in the eyes of our Lord. Look at verse 18. I advise you. Man, wouldn't it be amazing if the Lord wrote us a letter and he said, I advise you. How many of you would pay attention? I advise you to buy from me, from me, gold refined by fire so that you might become rich, so that you might actually become wealthy. You see, the city had attained their wealth, as I said, because of some very innovative people. So they had gold. They had a lot of gold. They just didn't have the right kind of gold. They had the wrong kind of gold. They didn't have the saving kind of gold. They did not have the purifying gold, which represents the power of Christ's sanctifying work in us. That he changes and transforms us. It's a purification process. He's saying, forget your fool's gold. You want gold that has actual eternal value. It won't come from your business deals. It only comes from me. Amen? One of the ways they accumulated such wealth was that they raised a breed of sheep there in Laodicea, a special breed of sheep. They were unique in the whole region. Their wool was thick. It was very shiny, and it was pitch black, black wool. So you can imagine having garments made with this high-grade black wool and how proud it must have made the Laodiceans to wear their duds that hardly anybody else had and to sell these clothes and these garments all over the region and it just poured money into the city. It was all the rage. They had a monopoly on the market and this black wool was big business. But what do you think of when you think of a black sheep? What does it mean in our in our culture? The black sheep, right? The black sheep of the family. So the next bit of advice that Jesus gives them is this. Buy from me white garments, white garments that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be manifested. He equated their black garments to actual nakedness. It might as well have been the same. In the eyes of the Lord, these garments are not true spiritual clothing. They are purposeless. And when we are truly in Christ's possession, he clothes us with his robes of righteousness, white as wool. And their clothing was made of black wool. The Laodiceans believed they were clothed, but the reality was they walked about with their shameful nakedness exposed to all. How many of you guys had a dream about you running around, you don't have clothes on? It's one of the most terrifying things you could ever think of, right? 
That's what he's saying here. You think you're clothed, but you're walking around with your nakedness exposed to everyone. The other unique and innovative way Laodicea gained their wealth is by producing a tablet for medicinal purposes and specifically for uh, the eyes. These tablets would be crushed and mixed with water and applied to the eyes to treat various eye conditions. And they sold these as well all over the region. So Jesus' next bit of advice for them, not only do you need to buy from me genuine gold of eternal value, you need white garments from me, but you also need to buy from me eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So that you may see. If you're truly saved, your treasure will be set on heavenly things. If you're truly saved, you will have white garments washed in the blood of the Lamb. If you're truly saved, your eyes will be open to your spiritual condition and your desperate need for Christ's redemption. You know you have no recourse on your own. He does not leave them without hope or destitute. He reassures them that these harsh words are words of love. The rebuke, the rebuke affirms it's proof that he loves them. Look at verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. If you never see his reproof or his discipline in your life, you should be worried. If you never feel that, if you never feel the conscience pricked, if you never see something exposed in your life that that makes you realize I've got some changes to make. And sometimes even when it stings, I can't remember a time when my dad actually corrected me that it didn't sting and it stung pretty, pretty good. And we can expect that from our father because he loves us. And that's what he's saying here. Therefore, be zealous and repent. The only response they have to change their dire spiritual condition is to zealously repent. And that word zealous means to passionately desire to repent. Passionately desire to repent. And Paul says, Paul says there's a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Your heart must first be broken over your sin or your condition. And that sorrow leads to repentance. And this is exactly what Jesus is pointing to here. It is their only hope. And the next statement makes it clear that Christ saw himself on the outside of that local congregation. If there be any doubt at all, the next verse makes it crystal clear. Verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and I will dine with him and he with me. So you see, this is not a verse to be used when we're talking one-on-one in a witnessing situation. You know, that, that Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart and let him come in and take residence in your heart and you'll be saved. And, you know, you can use it, but that's using it incorrectly if you use it that way. That is not the context in which he's speaking here. All of my life, this is how I've heard it, used it, depicted. There have been many, many times I've used it in that regard. Doesn't mean you're a heathen, just means... You know, we're trying to refine the way we read God's word and understand God's word. The scenario here is much more precarious because these folks are in a church, okay? These folks believe they're saved inside that church, but where is Jesus in this scenario? He's outside and he's knocking on the door and he wants to come in. He's wanting to come into this apostatized church 
But the only thing that he states will open the door to him is if they passionately desire to repent. And then they do so. He will reconcile with them. He will have unity with them. He will have intimacy with them. I know some of us manly men don't necessarily love that word intimacy, especially when we're talking about Jesus. But that's the goal. We must have intimacy with Christ. He wants to have fellowship and commune with them. If that's not something that's happening in your church, like if that, if that was something, if we didn't see that form of intimacy in our church, if you're the only one growing and experiencing that, then some tough questions have to be asked about our church, about our local church body. Where are we going wrong? Where would we be getting it wrong? But if you see many others in your church have unity, if they're growing in their intimacy with Christ, if they're abounding in fellowship, if they're communing together and with Christ, and I am not, then in the same way, I've got some tough questions to ask myself. Amen? The body of Christ, listen, the body of Christ, we're not, we're not playing games. The standards we live by, the things that we actually believe and hold to, they will define the quality of our lives. It's going to define us and how we live. Whether or not we live what we say we believe, how we treat one another, how we talk, these things will have an impact on our children. Likely our actions and attitudes will have an impact on our children's children, maybe even possibly for generations. We need to think with the future in mind, with our families in mind. What am I building within them? The world today is rough enough, amen? What do you think it's going to be 25, 35 years from now? When your children are adults, what will they face? Are you building within them the things that they need? That 25 to 35 years from now, they will be able to stand and proclaim the gospel boldly, even if it costs them everything. Is that how we are purposefully building our children? Are we mindful of that? So whether or not we live what we say we believe, as I said, it means everything to them. They can see right through hypocrisy. Kids will pick up on it in a split second. So our actions, our attitudes, it's going to have an impact on all of them. The church is not just a social gathering. Again, we aren't playing games beyond this life. So we consider the things in this temporal world right now and how what we believe actually affects how we live right now. But what about the eternal aspects of what we believe right now? Our children, we build within them. We feed them the bread of life. We give them a solid foundation. Not only so that they can, they can stand in a world gone crazy 20 years from now, but also if they do so step out of this, this life into eternity, that they would spend the rest of their life in the presence of Jesus Christ, their Savior. These truths define our eternal destinies. Can we just stop and think about that for a moment? Do you know why I'm saying we don't play games? That it's not just a social club? That what we believe actually has an eternal effect? The passage of Scripture today has many applications for us as a church and 
as individuals, but first and foremost, as I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, we can take stock. We can do a survey of what Christ said to them, and let's consider today what he might be saying to us as a church, as I just sort of paraphrase and go through this as as if this letter were being written to this church. This is what the one who created all things for his glory, the unique, preeminent, everlasting king of kings, the one who's been affirmed as always infinitely faithful and true in his witness says, he knows your deeds. He knows and sees all. There's nothing in your heart hidden from him. Does he see you as living with eternal purpose? Do you waver between hot and cold? Do you falter between two opinions, the word and the world? Do you say to yourself, I'm doing okay. I've got things covered. I've done a really good job so far. This whole Christ-like thing, I think I've got it down. I've got it figured out on my own. Could you be unaware that there are major areas of your walk with Christ in which you are sorely lacking? Perhaps you pick and choose which areas of Christ-like faith that you deem are personally important to you and you sort of brush the rest to the side. Best case scenario is that you're missing out on what Christ himself has designed for your benefit in the context of his church, in the context of your family, and your individual walk with Christ and growing in him. To grow you, to stretch you. Worst case scenario is that you are a fraud and you put on a good show and you've deceived yourself into thinking that you actually know him when you actually don't know him. And we know this is true because of what we read in Matthew 7 and what we read right here. That not everyone who says unto me, Lord, Lord, and is devoted to me and actually has deeds, right? Have we not done all these things in your name? And yet he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. So where is your treasure truly? Where is your treasure in this life? Are you truly being sanctified? Are you growing? Are you maturing in love for Christ and for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Is his church and his people a priority? Are you allowing God to stretch you even in struggle and hardship, suffering and loss, relational hardship and so forth? Do you Do you check out? Have you decided that God's people are not worth the effort or your family is not worth the effort or that coworker is not worth the effort, the struggle or the stress? You see, often while we're parading around in what we believe to be fine clothing, we've dressed ourselves in our own self-righteousness in this shiny black wool. We don't even realize that we're actually naked. And our immaturity, our selfishness, our lack of God's love is on full display for everyone to see. Chris and I were talking about this this week, you know, that that it's very obvious when you when you're with people who are immature and who just don't get it. It's very obvious. And folks, even now, even now in this moment, pray and look, I'm not pointing fingers at anybody in this room. I'm pointing fingers at myself. That's the spirit of this message. This is anybody and everybody in this room. Look inward. Look inward. Ask these hard questions. Pray that even now this would be the day that our loving Father would place his eye salve within our eyes and that each of us might truly see him for who he truly is, but also that we might see ourselves for who we truly are. That each of us, before we take part in communion, would take a serious look at our hearts before our holy God 
and repent of any filthiness there. That we would love and embrace his rebuke. Listen to me. That we would love and embrace his rebuke and his correction. That's tough. But that should be the stature and the attitude of our heart. Because in itself, he's saying to us, that is the evidence that he truly loves us. That if he's rebuking us and correcting us, his desire is to have fellowship and unity and intimacy with those who are his. His desire is to purify you until you reflect his holiness per- perfectly. And that won't happen until we step into his perfect presence. But that's still the direction we're supposed to be heading. He stands at the door and knocks. Will each of us passionately desire to repent? Not only to the Lord, but to our brothers and sisters in Christ that we may have offended, right? Right? We go to them, we repent, and we ask for forgiveness because we're supposed to have unity. We're supposed to love one another and have the tie that binds. Christ is the tie that binds. That's what it's supposed to be like. If someone hurt you or offended you, have you hurt or, or offended someone else? In a few minutes, I'm going to set some time aside that you can go to someone maybe in the room or perhaps later on today, you can call them or go to them and... And confess this before them and get yourself right with them and before God. Let's look at the very end of our passage today, verse 21. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. You see, the one who overcomes is the true believer. The overcomer is the one who perseveres. The overcomer is God's chosen, Christ's true sheep. The one who overcomes is the recipient of the Father beginning a good work in them. And then he promises that he will be faithful to complete that within them. Amen? You may ask, how do I know if I'm an overcomer? Well, Scripture is pretty clear on this. God's Word tells us that if you submit to Him, if you're growing in Him, if you're continuing in your process of sanctification, and then ultimately if you finish the race, you receive the crown of righteousness, You're an overcomer. Do you keep on keeping on? Are you remaining in the faith? That's how we know if we're an overcomer. Let me close by saying this as I quote the final line in this letter and several of the others. What Christ writes, listen to me now, what Christ writes and what the Word says, they are both synonymous with what the Spirit of God is saying. They're synonymous with what the Spirit of God is saying. And we would do well to understand that principle that's sitting right here in front of us in black and white. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, why do I say that? Because we know Christ is writing this letter. Christ himself is writing this letter. It's recorded here in his word. We can open the book. We can read it right there. We can read what it says. And yet Jesus says here, it is still, quote, what the Spirit says to the churches. The Holy Spirit is speaking through the Word of God. He who has an ear means those who would humble themselves, who would submit to this truth, who would bow to Him as true Lord. Those who would place the authority of the truth of Scripture over their own thoughts or opinions. He who has an ear, please hear this morning. He begs of us, if you have an ear, Do not harden your hearts, but hear what the Spirit is begging you to hear. 
Do not let another moment pass right now, right here. I'm going to take this moment. I want you to gather with your family, with your friends who are here this morning, okay? And, and so you can just get up out of your seat right where you are, gather with your family and friends. You can get together, nestle together. We're going to take a few moments here together. It's, we don't usually do this around here, but this is what I want to do this morning because I felt led to do this. So go ahead and get in little groups, and I'll give you a moment to do that. We're going to take a few minutes to pray and seek and submit to bow together. Do you know of areas in your life that you need to surrender to the Lord? Is there unconfessed sin in your life that this morning you really need to confess? If you don't have family, get together with, other, with your church family. Amen? That's okay. Don't, don't be alone. Just get together with someone. Take whatever position right now you need to. If you need to get on your knees, get on your knees. If you need to get on your face, get on your face. Look, I mean it. This morning, let's, let's really look at ourselves, all of us. Is there unconfessed sin in your life that you need to confess? As I said many, many times, turn the lights on. Don't let it go one moment longer before the Lord? Are you harboring jealousy, offense, unforgiveness for a brother or sister in Christ? This is the time to passionately desire to repent in this moment, right now. Go before God, uncomfortable or not. Do you know Him intimately? Are you truly seeking to know Him more intimately? Do you want to know His Word more deeply? Do you want the truth to drive everything that you do and say? Tell him now. Humble yourself in the eyes of the Lord. Tear your flesh down. Expose the things in your life that must be exposed. And his promise is that he will build you back up in the power of his spirit. Much has been said these last few weeks about revival. But true revival always begins with recognizing first, His infinite holiness, who God is and His divine attributes. And also recognizing our lack of holiness and how, fall, how far short we each fall. And then it leads to repentance. And that's where revival always begins. So the question this morning is, will you have the courage? Will you have the courage to admit that this morning, to lay it all down before Him? Thanks again for joining us. If you'd like to visit us in person, we meet at 1015 every Sunday morning at the Glenpool Conference Center. You are always welcome.